0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We tend to uh, preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we've been for to address what is the gospel in, in every sermon that we preach. And I believe that good preaching, no matter what passage you're in, is going to address the gospel so what is the gospel? We ask this question along with it kind of a sub question is this is it simply a set of propositions for us to mentally agree with? Is the gospel simply a set of All right, my goodness. Is the gospel simply a set of propositions for us to agree with? If if the gospel becomes nothing more, if the gospel is nothing more than a set of propositions, to be mentally agreed with or agreed to, then I was reminded this week as someone sent me a video of John Piper. It was, it was very uh, apropos for this moment. Where he reminds us that if we don't understand and preach the gospel rightly, preach the gospel well, and, and particularly how we relate to the gospel, and more on that in a bit, then we'll not have the necessary fertile soil to grow the rest of the Christian life from. If, if we don't understand appropriately and rightly the gospel and teach the gospel well, then we will not have the soil for which the other things of Christianity to grow in. So what we tend to want to do is talk a lot about praying, want to talk a lot about moral living, talk a lot about these other things. But if we don't understand the gospel right... Then the soil for which these other things we want to grow, the soil for which they need to grow, will not be there. So, we've talked last week about how Christ and his words are authoritative. How, how as we begin to answer the question of what is the gospel, when we think about the authority of Christ and his words, his words are authoritative. What he commands happens, God, what Christ creates comes into existence. What he speaks, rather, comes into existence, and, and what he commands, he commands the demons to come out, he commands sickness to, to be gone, and, and he even speaks with the authority of God when it comes to forgiving sins. We also talked in the second week about how his authority must be coupled along with his loving care. That he's not just an authoritative figure, but he's also an author, a person with the authority of God. He is God himself, but he has the authority of God, but he also has great care. And we must couple those two things together. So that's what we've talked about so far in a very quick uh, uh, nutshell here. Today I want to start with the idea that we, as we read in Romans 1 have this tendency to suppress what we know clearly. All humanity has this innate tendency and proclivity to suppress what we know clearly, namely, our uncleanness, our uncleanness, our lack of cleanliness. And you say, well, but but I'm hard on myself. I understand my uncleanness. Just just hang with me for a few minutes. Ever since the garden men and women know without a doubt that they are unclean, this is why Adam and Eve go to hide. It's why they hide from each other. It's why they hide from God. It's why they use fig leaves to cover themselves because they now are aware of this uncleanness that has come into this world and has riddled their entire lives, has tainted everything they say, do, think, feel. The entire existence now is touched by this reality of uncleanness. They know that they stand guilty before God. They know that they have shame. And according to Romans 1, then humanity goes on to suppress this reality, to to push it away or to escape from it, to to hide from it, to, to make it less than what it is. But everyone has a sense of dirtiness. A sense of uncleanness. The mother, after talking, or the father even, after talking to their child in a poor manner, recognizes their uncleanness. The husband and wife, trying to experience intimacy, understand and recognize a measure of their uncleanness. The thoughts of selfishness that pervade our mind. Uncleanness. And the question for us today is this, how do we deal with our uncleanness? How do we deal with our uncleanness? We're going to be in Mark chapter 7 and Mark 10 both today. I'm going to read to you just a few selected verses. Really, the passage for today, the first part, is Mark 7, verses 1 through 30. I'm going to read to you just a few select verses for sake of time. But in verse 7 of chapter 7, it says this, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, or to Christ, that is, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed then go into verse 9 and he said to them jesus speaking to them you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of god in order to establish your tradition and then move with me to verse 14 and he called the people to him jesus called the people to him again and said to them hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. I want to pray. Father, may we see clearly your word this morning. May, may I speak clearly. Father, may anything that I say that is not true, representing, representing you well, may it be stricken from our minds. But Father, may the things of your word... That are spoken today may they infiltrate deeply into our hearts, Father, for Your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, Amen. The first thing I want you to see is this: is that legalism leads to death. Legalism leads to death. Now, we we talk as a church a lot about legalism. Uh, I think. It's important for probably most churches to talk about legalism. Legalism is not just something in the church. It is anything apart from the gospel. So you don't have to go to church to be taught legalism, although churches do a very good job of teaching legalism. But legalism leads to death. When we go, uh, every couple years I go to a conference called Together for the Gospel, And they have on their page of beliefs and what we, you know, and then we usually have some video stuff on these things. And and they always have what they affirm and what they deny. They always have an affirmation and also a denial. They call them our affirmations and our denials. Because both are important when it comes to understanding a concept. It's important to understand, uh, it's important to have when you're understanding a person. Our situation. What what do we affirm, and, and what are we denying? You know, in, in our culture, particularly church culture, there's there's become this consistent tone of of this phrase: "All we ever do is tell the world what we are against." All we ever do is tell the world what we are against as a church, and and I, that's probably a fair critique. I think we we do tend to do that a lot. But the funny thing is, is we don't really do a good job of that either. Like actually defining what we are supposed to be against, and more on that in a bit. But you can't really know a person or know a concept fully by just knowing what they are, just knowing what they're for. We also must know what they're against and what we're denying as well. And the same is true for the gospel. If we're going to understand what the gospel is, we must also understand what the gospel is not. Legalism leads to death. The gospel is not legalism. Here, in this point in the passage, in Mark, Mark's recounting of Jesus' life and ministry, we become more thoroughly acquainted with the Pharisees. Right? Throughout much of Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees come to challenge Christ. We are probably very familiar with these, tori- these stories. Now, it's common for us to only think poorly about these men, but the reality is this, if these men were around today, you might just like them. Like what Dr. Aiken said, Dr. Danny Aiken, he said this, a Pharisee in the first century was not scorned as a legalist, no. No. He was looked up to as a model citizen and a person of piety and religion. We can be deceived, captured, and enslaved by the deadly lure of legalism. Tragically, those who have been raised in the church are the most susceptible to this deception. If the Pharisees were present today, the question is this: would you be attracted to them? Would they look enticing? Would they be the people you looked up to? Would they be the ones that capture your attention when it comes to the Christian life? I mean, they're the ones that have it all together, right? That the bowl on the outside looks polished and clean. I mean, they're the ones that are closest to God, right? They're the ones who have the ear of God. They're, they're the ones that have it together, so the, the question is, if the Pharisees were here today, would you be enticed by them? I mean, again, their, their lives look squeaky clean, right? I mean, shouldn't they be the ones that are elders, deacons, leaders in the church? I mean, here, aren't they the ones dealing with their uncleanness the best? I mean, it appears that way, right? The bowl is clean. And and that's what we strive for, right? We we want the bowl on the outside to be seen as clean. So would you be enticed? Would would you fall for it? Even, Even in a church like ours that doesn't feel legalistic, right? We don't wear suits. Demand ladies wear skirts or sit in pews surrounded by stained glass and sing with the piano and organ from a hymnal. Not that those things are necessarily legalistic, but they could be. But even in a church like ours that doesn't feel that way, could you still be enticed by legalism here? Legalism looks attractive. It looks enticing, but in the end it's deadly. So let's talk for a few moments about what is legalism from this passage as Christ is drawing out for our attention. I want you to notice three things from this passage concerning legalism. Legalism has everything to do with how... This is not the first of the three, for the record. This is another side thought. Legalism has everything to do with how you deal with your uncleanness. Okay? The first is this. Legalists make their standards to be God's standards. Legalists make their standards to be God's standards. they write their own standards. You know, interestingly, they're able to also keep all the standards that they hold. Listen, if you happen just just as a walk through your life this week, if you happen to be keeping the laws you hold dearly, you might be a legalist. As a shout-out to Jeff Foxworthy. (laughs) Mark 7, verse 8, Jesus says this. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Here's what happens. We leave the commands of God, largely, I think, because it takes abiding in Christ, to actually apply and do and live the commands of God. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So what we do is we take man's standards, women's standards, and transform them into laws. I'll give you one of old that is still infecting the church today. <clears throat> Unequally yoked marriage equals interracial marriages. I don't know if you grew up in churches that taught that. I did. That to be unequally yoked meant you need to marry someone of your same race. Or to be equally yoked, you must marry someone of your same race. So some of you today are still uncomfortable with interracial marriages. What's happened? We've, We've departed from the command of God and embraced a tradition of man as though it was the commands of God. We've departed from this. One of old. One of recent. Good Christians vote Republican. And they don't question the president. Unless he happens to be a Democrat. Listen, listen I, I, I was told a couple years ago that I was sinning for questioning the president. For calling out something he did wrong. And I was, call, I was told I was sinning by supposedly a very mature, older gentleman in the faith. Now that's ludicrous. So, so listen, if you think I'm just drawing up a smoke screen, this is real and alive. And, and if it's not explicit like that, it's very implicit in the way we approach things like politics. Good Christians do this. We, and if you don't, then you're not a part of our group. You're not a part of our tribe. You're not a part of our people. You must be, therefore, blue or the other side. See, legalists make their standards to be God's standards and then, and then preach it as so. Second, legalists compare themselves to others. Legalists compare themselves to others. Mark 7, 2, he says this, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then verse 5, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? hands what are the the pharisees doing what are the legalists doing they're comparing the disciples to the laws that they've written comparing the disciples ultimately to themselves and their aim is not to glorify god their aim is the glory they think they themselves exude that's their aim that's their focus So when they look at someone else, when they look at the disciples, they're comparing their actions, the disciples' actions, to their own actions. And how, of course, then does this make the Pharisees feel? Awesome. Great. Satisfied. Happy with themselves. Pleased. Fulfilled. Listen, legalists always have an appearance of godliness. But they only keep God's rules as a means to control God. And that's what the legalists were doing. I can keep this rule. therefore, God must do X. They don't actually love God. They love what they can get from God. Are you starting to see where this could still be very true and alive without stained glass windows? And hymnals. They don't actually love God. They love what they can get from God. Maybe it's a calm home that they get from God by, because of their legalism. Maybe it's good behaved kids that they get from God because of their legalism. Maybe it's secure finances they get from their legalism. Maybe it's a peaceful schedule that they get from their legalism. They don't do these things because they love God. They do these things because of what they can get. It's a means to control Him Listen, some of us have very clean, squeaky lives, prim and proper, house and order, church attendance and great. We don't say cuss words, but we know deep down that we struggle to love God. We just happen to love the things that the squeaky, queen, clean life can get us. Always looking, always comparing. Well, I am in a better place than this person. You know, the fruit of these beliefs, this, at least in part, self-imposed bondage, spiritual superiority, and self-righteousness. Self-imposed bondage, spiritual superiority, and self-righteousness. Look this week and see where those things are true. Third, legalists boast in behavioral superiority. Legalists boast in behavioral superiority. <clears throat> I, I don't know if you do much counseling, um, uh, formal or informal. I, I do a good bit of both. And what's wonderful in this passage you just watch how Jesus is such a counselor, such an incredible counselor. You know, a counselor's role, at least very fundamentally, is to expose the problem. And lead to healing, just like a medical doctor's role is too. But here we're probably talking about mental health and spiritual health and so on and so forth. But a lot of times even physical health is because of spiritual issues. It's the stewardship of body and those kind of things. But nevertheless, a counselor's role is to expose the problem and lead to healing. Much like a doctor does a sickness. Jesus exposes in this passage the motives of the Pharisees' hearts. And how does he do it? How does Jesus expose the motives? He does by applying heat. He applies a temperature, he ups the temperature and sees what boils to the surface. Now, how does he apply heat in this particular situation? He applies the heat of the scriptures, he applies the heat of biblical truth. So he quotes, and we didn't read this yet because we're reading it now, verse 6. He says, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Then he adds, so right, this is Jesus being the counselor in the moment. Then he adds in verse 14 and 15, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now remember, now listen, listen to that last verse. Remember, later, what will the Pharisees do? They will lead a plot to murder Jesus. Which does what? Proves that what Jesus says right here is right, and that all of these things came from within. And they will find their fullest extent apart from God's restraining grace. Listen, the Pharisees were only able to keep up the facade for a time. They were only able to keep up the polished outside of the bowl for a season. And then eventually it came out. So the legalist believes if he can just change the outward behaviors, then we can change everything. We can change the world even. It's how they deal with their uncleanness. Let me paraphrase um, something that Keller, Pastor Timothy Keller, said about this passage. He said, Jesus mentions a whole slew of things in verse 23, right? We just read. Uh, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, so on and so forth. These are all simply aspects of the law. If you go back to the law, you can find the portion of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, that these pieces fit underneath of. These are from the law. He goes on, if you look at any list of everything God's law says, Here's the thing. You and I will always find something in there that we feel is very, very important. And a lot of other things we don't feel are important. Here's what everybody does. We all do what the Pharisees do. Let me give you a quick example from our modern day. So let's talk about culture wars. He goes on. There are three approaches to the culture wars, he says, that I know of, and they cover almost everybody. You have the liberals, the conservatives, and what he calls the beyondists. Hang with me for a second. Here's what a liberal does. The liberal clings to things like greed, materialism, prejudice. They're going to fight against these things. These things are part of God's law. They may not care whether it's a part of God's law, but they fight for these things. They have picked a portion of what is good for human flourishing, and we know ultimately that honors God. They pick these things, and they go hard after them. They're in the law of God, and so if we lift that up, and we also put a whole lot of other rules and regulations around it, and we say... Quote, our kind of people and only our kind of people are inside our boundary, and people outside of this we bash, we look down our noses at, namely the conservatives. Now on the flip side of this, the conservative side of this, conservatives take part of the law as well, tend to highlight things like sexual immorality, It takes certain things, things like heresy and so on and so forth, and we, and we lift this up. And then we add all sorts of elaborations and all kinds of, of regulations and, and rules surrounding it, and we ignore things like materialism, greed, and prejudice. See, he goes on, See, whenever you lift up a part of God's law and elaborate it, and you neglect other parts... You create a manageable law, a law that you can obey, a law you can get on top of, a law that's doable. Then with it, you bash other people who are not doing it in order to justify yourself. And he goes on, then you have the beyondists, as he calls them. Do you know who the beyondists are? Beyondists are people who are saying, I'm beyond the liberal and the conservative. I'm beyond politics. I'm beyond ideology. I'm too creative for that. And of course, what you're doing is looking down your nose at those other two groups, which is what you have to do in order to deal with your uncleanness. It's a way of washing ourselves. It's a way of dealing with our uncleanness. Jesus says, you do many things like that. We all do it, and we're desperately trying, but it doesn't work. These things don't work. We can keep all these things clean. We can pick a portion of the law to the neglect of another portion of the law, and we can feel clean for a moment, but the problem is is that it doesn't work. That's the point of his last verse there in 23. All these evil things come from within. Those things defile a person. So you can keep this portion of the law. You can keep this portion of the law. You can neglect this portion of the law. The point is, Jesus is saying, is that your heart is evil. These things come from... From within, the reality is is that legalism can never deal with our uncleanness. It is of effort and futility. Legalism can never deal with our uncleanness, and yet we cling to it, we strive for it, we stroke it, we feed it, we go after it. Let's go to Mark chapter 7, verse 24. I'm thankful that this passage does not start, stop there. Verse 24, And Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know, and yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had, uncle- had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The second thing I want you to see is that grace leads to life. Grace leads to life. Grace exposes death and grace leads to life. Grace leads to life. Let me define grace for our purposes this morning. Unmerited divine assistance given to humans. God's kind disposition and act towards humans. Unmerited divine assistance given to humans. Now we can live in light of this grace and be gracious people as well, but for our purposes here, unmerited divine assistance given to humans. Now when we tend to think of grace, we might in a very short pithy statement say unmerited favor. But when we come to functionally live out grace we tend to define it the way our culture defines grace grace is affirming the goodness in me grace is overlooking the things that you don't like about me you should be gracious to me right you should overlook the things that annoy you grace is giving me what i want or grace is nice and comfortable grace to self is oh i I just i just need to be okay with myself right be gracious to yourself That's not the way grace is defined, at least in its totality. First, I want to talk about the idea of rugged grace. I am talking about rugged grace and sacrificial grace. Rugged grace first. There are many times that Jesus, Paul, Peter, etc., say extremely hard things, even extremely offensive things. Look at what Jesus did, just did. I, we knew slow down for a second and go, what has just happened? Jesus just called an entire group of people, an entire group of people who have committed their entire lives to personal holiness. And he has just called them all hypocrites. All right? He's called them all filthy, immoral enemies of God people who have committed their entire lives to religion and following God. And he exposes the reality that their personal holiness was not about the glory of God, but instead about their own glory. And this was graciousness to them. Now, did we affirm them where they're at? Did Jesus say, oh, you guys are okay, or I'm going to overlook it this time, or, you know, we're going to... No, what Jesus shows them, I, I want to call rugged grace. It's not the grace of rest or the grace of relief, but rugged grace. A willingness to say what was best for them to hear, whether they were going to like it or not. Now we come to Mark 7, verse 24. And it's talking about this phrase of dogs. What is Jesus doing with this? It's not good for me to feed the dogs when I need to feed them. Listen, dogs was a, was a racist title given to the Gentiles by the Jews. It was meant to convey the idea of The most despicable, insolent, and miserable of creatures. You dogs. Now we know from passages like Romans 1.16 that Jesus came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. But what's interesting is even here, Jesus just left the Pharisees, just left from engaging, showing rugged grace to the Jews, and then... Now he goes to the Gentiles, but yet he's supposed to be coming to the Jews first and not to the Gentiles. And, and that comes later, right? That's supposed to be Paul's ministry. But but now Jesus comes and he goes to the Syrophoenician woman. And Jesus' words are hard. Like Jesus' words are not, they're not they're not these soft, gentle words just quite yet. He says to her, in Mark twenty seven, verse 27, he says to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, if you study the Greek, the word here that Jesus used for dog is not the exact same word used for dog in the degrading sense. He uses a different word, even though it still means dog, but it was a different word. It was a word that referred to a small, clean dog meant for keeping in the house. So he uses a different word, but he acknowledges the, the brokenness of the situation. He acknowledges the, the tension, the racial tension. He, by referring to her still as a dog, but he uses a different word. He's referring to her Gentileness while not degrading her imago Day, in a sense. You see, Jesus must first, like this is part of his faithfulness to God's plan he must first come to restore the tribes of Jacob and then be a light to the nations this is not something that Jesus can just do away with but it's part of God's plan and part of God's faithfulness and Jesus is glad to do it what Jesus is saying let Israel receive the gospel first it would not be right for me to give it to you first so Jesus what does he do He applies the heat of the scriptures to her life. Now, he just applied the heat of the scriptures to the Pharisees' lives, and what came out? Right? Legalism. Now he applies the hard truth of the scriptures to the Syrophoenician woman. And how does she respond? Verse 28, But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I don't know if you catch the, the significance of what she says. She says two, She's saying two really important things here. The first is this. Is that at the table of grace, it is so bountiful and plentiful that there is plenty for both the Jews and the Gentiles to eat. She's saying the crumbs, there, there's leftovers at the table. That the gospel is, that, that faith in you, God, Jesus, I, I, yes, I, I get it. You came to save them first, but I know because of who you are, there's enough. The second thing is that she, in her humility, approaches saying this phrase, just a crumb, just a crumb. That's all I need is a crumb. Just toss me a crumb. That will be enough for me. That's all I'm asking for. Just a crumb will save me. Right? I think the, the man who's paralyzed, if we can just get Jesus down the roof, just close enough to Jesus. If, the woman who says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. This woman says here, if I could just have a crumb. You see, she came asking, and Jesus applied the heat of the scriptures to her life, just like he did the Pharisees. Hard, rugged, gracious truth with the Pharisees' legalism, hatred, defensiveness, anger, and eventually murder. But what comes out in the Syrophoenician woman? Humble faith. She didn't tuck her tail and walk away. She didn't get defensive. She didn't claim to be a victim. She didn't attack Jesus. She didn't justify her sin. Instead, she says to him, I have enough faith. I believe that if I could just have a crumb, it would save my daughter's life. How does Jesus respond to her? Verse 29, and he said to her, for this statement... For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. (sighs) And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus' rugged grace revealed her astonishing faith. In this case, it reveals their astonishing legalism. In this case, it reveals her astonishing faith. Here, you bunch of hypocrites. Here, the gospel has come to the Jews first. And you're a Gentile. Hatred. Faith. Grace. Christ reveals the death over here and life over here in fact if we want to begin to experience Jesus' grace we need faith like this woman quote willing to see ourselves as undeserving outsiders longing for a morsel from the king's table rugged rugged grace reveals the more we understand the depths of our sin the more we see how much we need our savior and rugged grace leads us to speak the truth then in love and humility as well right his you hypocrites What's it? He's revealing to them their need for a redeemer. The gospels come to the Jews first, and then later to the Gentiles, but it's come to, to God's people here, now, first. recognizing, speaking, revealing her need yet for a savior. she responds with faith. If you have your Bibles, go now to Mark 10. Mark 10, verse 32 through 35. Very quickly here. He began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Skip down to verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. I mean, just as a side thought here, it's quite amazing. Jesus has now told them, what, like three times that, that he's going to die. And all they can think about is their position in heaven. Not only is grace rugged, but grace is also sacrificial. Not only is grace rugged, but grace is also sacrificial. Giving grace requires sacrifice. It requires giving of yourself for nothing in return. You're giving and not in order to receive. But grace is giving and not giving in order to receive. Now, I know all of us have a hard time with this. A couple reasons. A couple things. things. We, we oftentimes only give in order to receive. If we aren't going to get the return we expect, then we won't do it. Or we might hesitate the next time, right? Or second, we give or we are gracious or we act in grace knowing that we're not going to get what we think we should receive, but we give thinking we should receive it. And so what we actually get in return for what we perceive to be gracious is the giving of self-righteousness to ourselves. So I'm going to go ahead and give this, even though I know I'm not going to get anything, but I'm going to put a notch in my belt. I'm going to give myself a pat on the back because... I have been gracious to you. Listen, if you expect something in return for your grace, then it wasn't grace. You turned it into something that required merit, that required payment. It wasn't sacrificial. But grace by nature requires sacrifice because it means you're getting nothing in exchange because that, again, would make it meritorious. And again, Mark 10, here Jesus is talk talks about his death now for the third time. And look how the disciples respond. They start jockeying for a special seed in God's kingdom. But look how Jesus responds to their Comments, Mark 10, verse 42 through 45. And Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those who would be great in God's kingdom must be servants, Jesus says. Not servants in order to get greatness, but indeed being a servant is greatness. Those willing to lay down their lives for others, those who take more pride in seeing others flourish rather than themselves flourish. Listen, God has even designed us a goodness here. Have you ever thought about... how good and, and, and enriching it feels when that person you've helped begins to flourish, whether that's in parenting or someone you've discipled or a coworker you helped complete a task for the job. Ah, I helped them do that. Like, there's a goodness in that. There's this sense in which it's okay to, to be proud of that i helped this person flourish. True leaders see their role is to serve and see that the whole group or the community or the people around us flourish. And so Jesus is recognizing here that this grace is also sacrificial. Listen, Jesus' rugged grace reveals our sin and shows us how much we need Christ when we truly accept the rugged grace, we become ripe for Jesus' sacrificial grace. When, When we see God's rugged grace, Him applying the heat and showing us our brokenness and need for a Savior, and by His grace we begin to see that and accept that, then it makes us ripe for his sacrificial grace where he would come to this earth and serve us by dying on the cross for us. The cross, the sacrificial grace of the cross will mean so much more to us when we see and believe and understand and experience the rugged grace of Christ. Listen, rugged and sacrificial grace also teach us how to deal with each other. Rugged, sacrificial grace gives those who are afraid to speak the truth the fuel they need to speak up. And those who struggle to hold their tongues, rugged, sacrificial grace gives them the fuel to hold back. You see, God's grace in Christ always reveals our hearts. When that heat is applied, what comes out? What bubbles to the surface, right? Think of uh, metallurgy, right? Uh, we talked about in First Peter. When he applies the heat to the gold, what kind of dross boils to the surface? And God's grace reveals what's inside. And When we are faced with God's grace, it will reveal that legalism is in our hearts as we respond by more laws, more self-justification, and so on, more hiding, or God's grace will reveal faith, faith that a crumb from the table of redemption is enough for us. Faith that God's grace through the cross, His love for us in sending His Son to be the payment for our sins, and then welcoming us through His redemption to be sons and daughters, that just a crumb from that table would be enough. Again, the question is, how do we deal with our uncleanness? Do we deal with it by more laws, more hiding, more self-justification, comparing ourselves to others, behavioral superiority? Or do we respond to our uncleanness by hearing the rugged grace of God's law and God's commands and the work of Jesus and seeing that and believing that His sacrificial grace on the cross is enough for us. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we think about such things that our hearts would be open, that our hearts would be pricked. Father, we would see that we do not measure up, we are not clean enough, we are not good enough, And and the attempt to do so on our own is futile. That we cannot, by more rules, by more hiding, by more escaping, by more suppressing, by more means, other means of legalism, we cannot deal with our uncleanness that way. Father, even today I'm sure that your word has revealed in many of our hearts uncleanness and legalism that is still lurching in corners here and there, that still has a grasp of our hearts. And Father, I pray that those hearts and the rest of our hearts would hear that there is grace at the cross. That your son Jesus came to die for their sins and for my sins. That he paid the price not just for the sins that... Are lurking around, but Father, also for the sins of legalism. That his grace is sufficient for even that. And that Father, your rugged grace, your sacrificial grace would melt our legalistic hearts. Yes, every aspect of your law is important, Father. Every aspect not just the ones that we value, not just the ones we think we can keep. It all matters. And when we see it, we know we can't keep it. But Jesus did. Let us cling to the cross, to the grace of the cross. Let us run to the cross in confession and faith, believing that there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Father, I pray that you're glorified in our thoughts and our actions this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with me?